Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a podcast in which we attempt to talk about films within the confines of a particular theme that changes from episode to episode. I am Joe Gastineau and I'm joined as always via satellite by Ed Davis. How are you doing, sir? All right? Very, very well. Very happy on this great day for British tennis. Yes, it's been a fine day for British tennis. Um, Al Murray, pub landlord, has won the... Uh, and, and, you know, in contrary to what the BBC's website is saying... Um, he's not the first person to win in in 77 years. He's the first man to win a Wimbledon title. Uh, they still haven't quite got that message yet. Yeah, I was quite surprised that he was playing against uh, Jacques Zinayev, the Boston bomber. That was a. He's recovered very quickly from his injury. It was a bold. It was a bold choice for him to come back and end up in the Wimbledon final. Mm, I can't take Djokovic seriously as a tennis player because he looks just like my mate Mike, like look creeping, <laughs> creepingly so. Like and uh, yeah, just. Yeah, I, can't, I still can't quite get my head around that it's not him. Um, but yeah, it's um, been—it's um, the height of a, of a heat wave in England. I know that you're used to such things living in kind of Florida, um, but it's unbearable. Ed, it's too hot. If anything, it's too hot. That's the—that's the sense I'm getting from everyone's tweets and Facebook. Yeah, I mean, everyone likes the sun when it's out for like five minutes, and then all of a sudden it's too much and you know people can't take it and as of any kind of like weather off the medium scale British people just fall apart if it's you know 10 degrees too cold or 10 degrees too warm we just can't cope it's the wacky neighbour of uh, of Britain isn't it mm. everyone likes it in small doses but if you get a, a spin off of it everyone just gets bored yeah it's bullshit um, speaking of spin offs did you read today that um, the uh, Sol Goodman spin-off for Breaking Bad is Gathering Pace I did yes I saw that they are very seriously pursuing it which is still quite vague Mm. Um, they haven't said if it's going to be a comedy or a drama if it's going to be half an hour or an hour all they've said is or if it's uh, going to be a sequel or a prequel to Breaking Bad because obviously if they say one way or the other it kind of gives away what's going to happen in Breaking Bad to an extent yeah I wouldn't mind a prequel like um, Saul Goodman at law school (laughs) would be interesting because I imagine his law school would be him doing his degree by post um, but yeah it's it's an intriguing proposition isn't it because uh, yeah you wouldn't have thought a Breaking Bad spin-off would be a good idea at all if it's going to be anyone it's going to be Saul yeah and I do like the idea of a very serious drama about the nature of evil spinning off into a kind of a wacky sitcom about a corrupt lawyer mm. I know that they've had spin-offs in the opposite direction you know the Mary Tyler Moore show led to um, Lou Grant which was a fairly serious hour long drama um, but I've never heard of it going kind of the other way so I think it'd be quite interesting mm, yeah anyway <laughs> that was a, a, a tangent aside uh, so we've covered Wimbledon the Heat Wave and the Breaking Bad spin-off. Um, we normally talk about films within the confines of a particular theme that change from episode to episode, as I um, uh, want to say at the start of all these episodes. Uh, but this week, we've not gone for a theme per se. We've picked a particular film to talk about and uh, maybe spin off some ideas from that. What film have we chosen, Ed, and why? We have chosen the 1955 classic, Night of the Hunter, directed by Charles Lawson, starring Robert Mitchum, Lillian Giss and Shelley Winters. And we've decided to do it because it's really, really good. Yeah. Also because it's a film that you had not seen. 
Oh, you said that very accusatively. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. You know, I just haven't got around to it. You know, um, you're right. I haven't seen it, and I saw it for the first time on Thursday. And you rewatched it today. Is that right? I did. Yes, I rewatched it for for the purposes of this. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna shock you with a revelation. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was that good. What? Uh, <laughs> okay, I'll rephrase that. I don't think it was as good as everyone makes out. Right. Okay. And I'll tell you for why. <laughs> I thought it Justify was. Justify yourself. I will. Um. Um. I thought that um. The the way it was shot and everything and the, and the direction of it, which I'll get to later, because I've got I've got something very kind of interesting to kind of lead on that, was amazing. And uh, any time Robert Mitchum was on screen, uh, it was fantastic. Um. But I found a lot of the other uh, performances, especially from uh, the children and um. The woman who played the person who owned the cafe, Mrs. Spoon, mm. um, to be not very good. And I also found that um, some of the things that happened in it kind of defied the logic of its own story. Um, and they were tiny, tiny things, but I felt like they really punctured the tension for me. So, like, for instance, this is one thing, right? Mitchum pursued, they escaped down the river, right? And Mitchum has pursued them. And at the point at which they got on the boat, the two kids are chased through quicksand by a maniac wielding a knife. The first thing that the little girl does when she sees him is goes to hug him, like like weeks later. I don't get that. What's that about? Yeah, I think that character is just useless. Yeah, I fucking hate that <laughs> She's kid. just a completely useless character. And I knew that I was watching it with my missus. My missus was screaming for the boy to leave the girl, <laughs> take the doll and get on the boat and like leave her. And I have to agree with her. Um, and I came close to throwing my TV out the window uh, whenever um, Icy Spoon, as her name is in the character, was on screen. Because she was one of the most great screen presences I think I've ever seen. Mm. Well, the thing with the, the, the young girl is, I think... She, when they're running away, she doesn't quite understand why. Mm. I don't think she quite understands that Mitchum's character is bad when they're being chased by him. And, you know, he's kind of going for it. She doesn't see him as a maniac. She sees him as, you know, the loving father figure who her brother hates for some reason is taking her away from. I think the character in general is not that well defined, but I can kind of... I can kind of see the logic of why she would act that way because up until that point she doesn't really understand the idea of how bad sort of Mitchum's character is that only really happens towards the end that's kind of sort of shattered for her yeah well I'll, I'll, I'll use this then to counter that that I don't think that that little girl playing her had quite the uh, the nuance to convey that no I think um, some of the some of the kind of the issues with it in that regard are kind of for me they're painted over by the sort of the, the, the overall style of it, the fact that it's kind of a fairy tale and it has this sort of dreamlike quality to it that I don't mind that some of the parts in it are strictly that don't kind of line up too good in terms of the realism or the acting yet, yeah, because that little girl was not the she's not a very strong part of the film. Mm. And I think maybe like um um I was perhaps being a bit flippant. Uh, and I think that this is perhaps the problem of watching a film that is already a uh, well-regarded classic. Like I think maybe if I'd have watched that maybe ten years ago, when perhaps I hadn't mm. seen quite as many films that were kind of so highly regarded, um, I wouldn't have thought two ways about it. I would have thought, yeah, great. But I've just been told for years and years and years this film is a, you know, a five-star classic. And for me, it was a it was a four-star. Do you know what I mean? It had a. I think there was. There just. I don't know. I think maybe my the level of expectation I had that took took the extra star off. 
I've I've found that I like it more the more times I've seen it. I remember the first time being quite impressed by it. You know, the visuals and certainly some of the the scenes of them floating down the river are really spectacular. And mm. I really liked. I mean, Lawton obviously his career ran from the, sort of the early days of cinema. He was, I think, the first person to win the ask the Oscar for best actor. Um, you know, he was someone who his career stretched back that much. So he, obviously, he had experience of working in sort of the silent era, and I think you can kind, of, or at least of growing up watching those and those being his kind of formative things. So I really like the visual style and the sort of the expressionistic approach that he brings to it. Mm. And then, and you know, just that kind of that sort of eerie, sort of fairy tale, Brothers Grimm kind of quality that it has to it. Hang on subsequent watches I've I've liked it more and more and I think just kind of once you know to, what to expect and to kind of know that you know the kids aren't great um, you can kind of overlook that and so that's kind of so as, as I've watched it more and more and you know like today watching it for the sort of the third or fourth time I really uh, I sort of loved it more than sort of the subsequent times I've seen it hmm. here's the thing and this is what struck me immediately after about five or six minutes of the film had actually gone that when you know because I it's very famous we've talked about it on this podcast before that Charles Lawton directed the film and then never directed anything again Uh, I was assuming when I came to the film that it would be very much an actor's film Mm. it would be very much focused on performance and uh, perhaps the, the kind of the visual side perhaps wouldn't be so dynamic but what really knocked me on my, my ass about Night of the Hunter was that it was the opposite way entirely. It was, uh, if anything, it was the performances, as I previously said, that were slightly stilted, and the film was just kind of a dizzying array of crazy ideas and, and stylistic flourishes that you perhaps wouldn't expect. Yeah, I think the the great kind of tragedy obviously he didn't get to direct another film because the film wasn't very successful and I think he had a pretty rough time on it, he didn't really get on with Robert Mitchum that well and it it was kind of, I think it was more, it was too much trouble for him to kind of want to go through the whole thing again, so he never returned to it and I think, you know, the tragedy is that he didn't, it didn't meet with a better reception that he could have kind of tried to expand upon that style because it's pretty distinct from the beginning you know it's like Orson Welles with Citizen Kane sort of straight away uh, someone comes to the gets behind the camera and knows exactly what they want to do and how to do something in a way that is not it's it's kind of familiar but kind of brings together all of these sort of disparate elements in a new way Mm. and I think you know it would have been really really interesting to see what he would have done if he got to make obviously he didn't live too long I think he died in the late 60s so sort of 10 years after this film but that's enough time for him to have made sort of two or three more films and to maybe have really kind of pushed himself even further than he did on this film yeah I think I read that he had a another project lined up but just dropped it because you know he just didn't you know, didn't see what the the point was if no one was going to give a shit. Um, I mean, just the stuff that was in there was quite daring. Like, I mean, there was a helicopter shot in there. Like, one of the first shots is a helicopter shot. And I found out there's another shot later on in the film that's, I think it's a helicopter shot, where Mitchum's riding his horse. Uh, that's, a mid- that's a midget on a pony. I found that out. <laughs> it's true. Um, they used a lot of midgets in, in back in the day. Um, I don't know if you know this, but, like, you know the end of Casablanca? 
Yeah. You know, when they're still at the airport and they're having the kind of, uh, you know, that exchange about whether she should stay or he should go with her or whatever. In the background, there's some guys refueling a plane. That's midgets with a model plane. Wow. Because they, they, they didn't have the, the, you know, obviously it wasn't a huge location. It was a kind of smallish lot. But to to cheat the scale, <laughs> midgets, <laughs> and um, yeah, a model plane that happened a lot in 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 old films, and uh, yeah, they all the CGI nowadays, they needn't bother. There's uh, you know small people who are out of work, um, but uh, what I did like about the film, uh, which you know I you know maybe I overstated myself, <laughs> I didn't enjoy it very much. I was just trying to be controversial. Um, was the the um, it was one of the scariest films I think I've ever seen. Um, it was uh, there was also some incredibly creepy atmospheric things like um, the bit with uh, Shelley Winter's body in the underwater with the mm. in the car, and I found out in subsequent reading, and I was I was completely fooled that that was a doll. I thought that was actually her. That was actually a incredibly lifelike doll. Yeah, I because I'd forgotten about that bit it's been a few years since I, I rewatched it so there were certain there were just kind of certain scenes that slipped from my mind and I did sit there and just kind of think wow I wonder how they managed to get her to I was in my head I was thinking you know that she's either underwater holding her breath or it's like through a pain to make it look like it's water and they're using sort of wind to make a hair go that way or something mm. when obviously the easiest thing is it's just an amazing dummy but it does look uh, sort of astonishing and incredibly creepy just the, the tendrils of the hair. Well, it got my nerves these days when they do it. Well, it's called uh, when they shoot it. It's called dry for wet. When they just shoot mm. someone with a fan, it looks crap. Just stick yeah. someone in water. It's you know, it's not hard. Um, but yeah, it was it, that was really kind of haunting. And and then when the fish hook comes down and kind of catches on the on on the windscreen, that's uh, that's great. Um, there, there's some really kind of creepy uses of singing, especially mm. when uh, he's kind of camped outside their house singing that hymn about Jesus I mean I find kind of Jesus hymns creepy anyway but dude seriously you know what I mean yeah they they can be quite dirge like can't they mm. and I think in a if it's lots of people singing it and there's sort of a sense of community then I think there's it, it kind of feels a little warmer whereas if it's a single voice kind of singing it in the night mm. and you can't see who's doing it it's incredibly scary yeah um, obviously Robert Mitchum's performance is probably you know, one of the most iconic villains of all time. Um, also gives me one of my favourite um, uh, Simpsons gags ever. When uh, obviously Robert Mitchum in the film has love and hate on his knuckles, tattooed on his knuckles, and uh, in the uh, Cape Fear kind of parody, Sideshow Bob has love. But obviously the 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 characters in the Simpsons only have three fingers, so he has L U V, and then he has H U with a, like an a- an accent, and then T. <laughs> so it's, it's it's a really kind of great gag, uh, great side gag. But yeah, that was um, uh, I, that's what I found very powerful about the film. Is Mitchum is is just kind of this relentless um, force of nature that just you know terrifies you every time it's on the screen. And um, yeah, I was um, I did because I, I didn't know how the film ended or anything. So mm. I, I, I literally didn't know anything about it other than the kind of iconic images and, and a few kind of snippets of facts about it. Um, so yes, it was a very, very tense experience first time round. Yeah, I think also his performance really sells the whole love and hate where he's wrestling with his hands. Mm. Because that's the sort of thing where if you didn't have someone who could really invest that with kind of intensity, you can see like the force he's putting in as he shakes his hands. Yeah. You know, if you didn't have someone that could look really cheesy or really campy, but you know, he 
really makes it impressive. But he also has that kind of that jovial, you know, I'm a preacher, I'm telling people, and sort of a parable and everything. So he manages to make it both really, really intense, but you can also see that he's playing to an audience and he's trying to win everyone over with this kind of these kind of like folksy aphorisms, kind of like oh oh oh, loves winning, you know, mm. and he's doing all that sort of stuff. And it's a really it's a really well judged bit of performance that. And the whole the whole film is particularly when you see him kind of putting on the mask essentially to try and convince everyone that he is just this good old fashioned preacher. Yeah. Um, and but then you know you see him when he goes to the uh, it's not really a strip club but you know to the peep show yeah. uh, at the start of the film and you can just see kind of like the sort of the roiling sexual tension and the shame kind of on his face and obviously the knife going through his pant leg which is uh, a, lo- <laughs> a lovely bit of innuendo visual innuendo on Lawson's part yes it was um, and I had to I kind of like blinked away from the screen for a second and had to rewind mm. it because I didn't know whether his his kind of phallus had burst through his his pocket. I had to kind of miss the knife coming out, and I was like, oh, what was that? Yeah. And then I had to kind of rewind it. Um, do you think that, like, uh, given how scary he is and how iconic um, a character um, he is, uh, do you think, and this is a kind of a niche question, <laughs> do you think that um, Harry Powell is the most terrifying non-supernatural villain in film? Yeah, I think it's it's got to be him or some other kind of really grounded killer. Mm. Someone who's just perfectly nice or seems perfectly nice to everyone around them. Because mm. I was just trying to think who would possibly rival him. And the first thing that comes to mind is someone like a Hannibal Lecter. But mm. more the Brian Cox version who's not kind of so ostentatious. Mm. Someone who's, who's clearly a, an utter psychopath and clearly deadly but doesn't kind of play to the to the crowd in the way that sort of Anthony Hopkins does in his sort of renditions of the character or you know Norman Bates probably but then again that one I think a lot of the terror of Norman kind of disappears when you see him in the dress yes you know that last although then it does come back with the superimposition of the mother's skull over his uh, at the very end of Psycho because mm. I always whenever I watch Psycho like I'm really I'm really terrified of of Norman because he's a really uneasy presence all the way through. Yeah. And then suddenly you see him in the dress and it's the intensity of that scene kind of carries it, but it's still kind of silly. Yeah. Like if you just look in isolate the isolated frame of him standing in the doorway dressed in as his mother, mm. it's it is silly. But then you know you just see him kind of like staring and catatonic, and then the skull, and then it just leaves you completely creeped out yeah it's pretty kind of uh, devilish um, here's a suggestion for most terrifying non-supernatural villain uh, Frank Booth in Blue Velvet oh yeah he's he's absolutely terrifying just Dennis Hopper in real life yeah well I mean there's that famous story isn't there when he phoned David Lynch and just said I am Frank Booth I mean <laughs> what, what do you do to that do you cast him do you not cast him <laughs> I mean yeah you call the police yeah probably all of the above um, I've also got a, a role that Robert Mitchum played as well Max Cady uh, from Cape Fear the, the, the kind mm. of relentlessly uh, um, kind of pursuer of, of the family um, although I'm more familiar with I've seen the original uh, Cape Fear but I've seen the remake many more times which Mitchum also appears in, doesn't he? Yeah, he plays the judge. Yeah, Mitchum and Peck both appear in that, I think. 
and in a sort of a, a sly bit of casting is Mitchum plays the nice character and Gregory Peck is the lawyer, the sleazy lawyer who um, gets uh, the restraining order put against Nick Nolte yeah yeah um, do, you, do you like the Cape Fear remake a lot of people are kind of quite down on it I enjoy it but I think it's it's very it's a little too pulpy or it's too um, I think the balance between sort of being serious and being pulpy is not quite there I think coming off of Goodfellas I think Scorsese was a little heavy on sort of the portentousness of it and that kind of doesn't chime entirely well with the pulpy elements it's the same problem I kind of have with Shutter Island which I enjoy as Mm. well but I kind of think there's a kind of a, a seriousness that is at odds with kind of how pulpy the material is and I think that balance is maintained a lot better in the original and also I prefer Mitchum's performance because I think he handles the whole um, the, the the side of Katie that is able to fool the world and you know to get that restraining order against him and make him seem like the, the innocent victim whereas I think that sort of De Niro's portrayal of it is just too obviously villainous mm. yeah. like he just seems too uh, too utterly mental mm. Yeah, he does. But I do like it. It's 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 it, that that's a lot of fun. But I do prefer the original. Yeah, um, that's the thing about Mitchum in um, Night of the Hunter um, is that um, and not really at many points in the film do I think that he's crazy. Mm. He's just a terrifying, driven by one thing, criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he was based on a real guy. Apparently, I don't know if you've read too much about that guy. I was reading up about it today. I didn't read up on him, but I did see that the the novel and subsequently the film were inspired by a real sort of depression era um, killer who would sort of go around prey on wives and sort of murder them and then move on. Yeah, he would post lonely heart ads, and then when they responded, oh. they would be dead. I do like how the film is not overly violent, but the suggestions of violence in it are really really impressive. Obviously the pretty much the opening shot is of the sort of the woman's legs at the bottom of the stairs mm. and then just showing Beng showing uh, Powell sort of going around and then it kind of leaves you in a, no doubt whatsoever <laughs> that he's responsible for it and without having to be really uh, explicit about it Lawson just suggests this guy is not who he appears to be yeah and there's a really grim bit like where he's about to slit Shelley Winter's throat and she's just kind of laying there and then she just completely accepts it and doesn't try and fight it at all yeah because he basically browbeats her into sort of accepting that he's right uh, until she serves no sort of purpose for him because he realises she has no idea about the money anymore yeah uh, yeah that's pretty grim that bit um, father figures in film uh, a, a kind of a rich vein of of uh, interesting uh, sorts uh, from you know, you kind of rascals like uh, Royal Tenenbaum to um, people like Harry Powell, those father figures that are are inherently corrupt. Um, is it does it make it worse in films when it's uh, the father perpetrating things uh, because it's that kind of an extra layer of betrayal on whoever they're they're after if they're if they're after their own kids? Yeah, I mean, definitely in the case of something like. A biolog- it's it, you know there's kind of a sliding scale to it. I think you know obviously biological father they're meant to have an internal urge to protect their own kids and their own family. So when they do it, it's obviously 
horrifying. Um, but I think you know with step stepfathers, it's particularly it's bad as well because obviously you know there's that whole thing built into sort of fairy tales of wicked step parents and things like that. So the idea of someone coming into the family and taking over and then saying having these kids who have suddenly come into their charge and treating them badly, you know, abusing them. Mm. or you know or or murdering them is you know it feels like a betrayal but also i think there's kind of it depends on the film but i think in some films there's kind of a undercurrent of betrayal on the part of the of the mother or the father depending on you know who is who is remarried of their spouse that they've remarried but they've taken on someone who's obviously not fit to kind of replace the person who's died so things like that where the, the the husband kind of has the opportunity to judge and say you know this guy isn't the right guy but no one believes him because you think everyone just assumes that he's jealous yeah so yeah. there's kind of an extra betrayal on the part of the, the surviving spouse hmm yeah um is the I think we've kind of discussed this before but is is the ultimate um uh terrible father uh Noah Cross from uh Chinatown yeah, I think you'd have to go some way to be him. Yeah, um, he even makes Harry Powell look like Atticus Finch, doesn't he? Yeah, especially because you ba- you know that, well, spoilers, I guess, for Charlie in Town, that he gets away with everything. Mm. Do, you, do you think that if um, Night of the Hunter would have been made ten years later, we would have seen a different end to the film? Because, I mean, one of the, one of the things you always see in films kind of right from the 30s right through to kind of the, the early 60s really is anyone who perpetrates a crime has to inevitably end up paying for it because there was a kind of a, a moral code in in uh, Hollywood at the time um, and you know Mitchum certainly gets his in Night of the Hunter and it's all kind of wrapped up conveniently do you think that in the, the kind of new Hollywood era that film would have been perhaps slightly more caustic yeah, I think it was. I think I was reading up on this. It was mandated that the kids had to be okay. Right. That the kids couldn't be physically harmed in some way by the basically by the Hayes Code. Mm. And I don't think, I don't think that the ending would have been substantially different in terms of what happens to Mitchum. But I don't think it would happen off screen. Because um, spoilers. Uh, obviously, I think people should realise we're going to be talking about it in depth, but. You know, he dies, or it's implied that he dies at the hands of a lynch mob mm-hmm. for being a bluebeard who goes around and sort of marries loads of people's wives and kills them, um, which I thought was quite a uh, was, is quite a brutal way to kill him, really. Yeah. <laughs> Especially because the entire crowd goes. There's a nice undercurrent in the film of kind of the hypocrisy of small towns, mm. because obviously mrs spoon completely falls under the sway of him and every pretty much everyone in the town sort of falls in love with powell and then right at the end it's suddenly they they turn into this sort of foaming insane mass of people who are just tearing the place apart in order to kill him yeah literally pitchforks and flaming torches Mm, i think uh it seems to me that i think probably one of the reasons the film didn't do quite well is that there's an undercurrent in it of kind of criticizing most of the kind of the tenets of American life in kind of the 50s mm. you know it's, there's an implicit thing that religion can be uh, you know there's I think it's it comes down on the side of faith in the Lillian Gish character who's obviously shown to be a very uh, very pious woman someone who really believes in it but I think on the side of it's all organised religion I think which I think Powell represents it implies that there's sort of a, there can be a corrupting influence to it under the surface but then you've also got 
you know, basically saying that all these kind of small towns that constitute most of America are filled with sort of idiots and sort of rampant hypocrites and drunkards. Yeah. It's not really the sort of message that is going to get you boffo box office, is it? No, no. Do you think that's the main reason why it failed at the box office? Because this was a failure on both the uh, kind of commercially and critically at the time. Um, was it too far ahead of its time? Was it was it too kind of sinister, or was it just too weird the way it was shot? I think it was probably a mixture of all things, but I think it's at, at the, that point in American history. You know, the fifties is kind of this sort of golden era, which of ever, of sort of prosperity and sort of the idea everyone sort of idealizes the sort of the small town white picket fence sort of thing. I think it's a message that people weren't terribly interested in hearing. I think that's why you can see why as sort of awareness kind of comes and people realizes that that sort of leave it to beaver kind of vision is not right, is not something that's actually true. That's why the film has kind of come to be appreciated a lot more. Hmm. When did the kind of critical reappraisal of it kind of start? Because it, it wasn't one of those films that was kind of hounded out of town like kind of peeping Tom, only to be kind of championed later by one person. It, did it kind of slowly gather this, the kind of praise that it got over the years? Uh, yeah, I think it was a very slow one. It was a very slow kind of build. I think it mainly started in sort of the... I think it's the late 60s and 70s around the new Hollywood era. Mm-hmm. I think that was around about the sort of time that people around the world started to look at it in a different light. Yeah, because it, it was kind of in a similar way to, you know, the way that sort of Citizen Kane was very successful, but critically kind of got mixed reviews when it came out. And then over time, sort of people reappraised it. Yeah. It was a similar sort of thing for Night of the Hunter. And it's it's one of those films that uh, frequently features on best of all time lists, uh, and it's one of those films that I believe in France the it's often and ranks higher than Kane, like regularly, always will top it out of the the, the kind of the best American films. Yeah, I think as in a lot of these sort of situations, the sort of the French critics were the were the people who really sort of championed it. I think it may have topped the Cahiers de Cinema poll at multiple times it may have even topped the first one hmm. you see this is perhaps why I was slightly underwhelmed by it because I, yeah, I was that is a lot it's a lot to live up to it is yes and I was expecting it to be a kind of flawless film um, which you know is foolish of me because I should know that there's not really such a thing in the world um, but you know it's rubbish it's not as good as Tommy Boy um, um, there's a kind of marked sh- uh, shift in tone later on in the film where the kids make their uh, escape via uh, the medium of river um, and it gets all a bit kind of Huckleberry finish and but it's also quite magical the way it's presented and there's some beautiful photography in there um, there is a shot they go to the well a bit too often where they have just an animal in the foreground and the, the the uh, the boat goes past in the background. There was a bit with a tortoise, a bit with a frog, a bit with a rabbit, and I was kind of just expecting a gag animal to come up uh, next <laughs> to like a gnome or something. Um, but uh, there was some amazing stuff. There's, I think, the shot that really surprised me and made me think that I was watching a film that was made much later was there was a, a, a totally top-down shot of the boat kind of rolling underneath, which would have been 
you know, with big cameras back in the day and not on location, it would have been very, very difficult to, to kind of set that up, but it looked amazing. Um, do you think that kind of the magic feel it has um, does kind of set it apart from other films? Are there, are there other films that, that do that uh, because of Night of the Hunter? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of examples you can look at films. When I was watching it, I think um, Jim Jarmusch seemed to take a lot from it. Mm. I think if you look at something like Down by Law or um, or Stranger Than Paradise, both of those have a similar sort of feel where it's realism but shot in a very sort of dreamlike way, uh, sort of the, particularly in Down by Law, you know, there's the whole prison escape which kind of isn't shot like a traditional uh, prison escape. It's kind of just more like a sense of an escape one minute they're in their cell and then sort of a couple of things happen and then they're out mm-hmm. which is kind of dreamlike and it has that same sort of sense of depicting real people but the world around them seems completely fake yeah uh, but not in a not in a way that you think oh that's shoddy filmmaking but more in a, in a heightened sense yeah that... which you can kind of see when the kids are floating down the river yeah the, another Jarmusch film that does that uh, is Dead Man the, practically the whole uh, the whole film has that feel to it um, which features Robert Mitchell exactly Mitchell yeah full, full circle there um, and Iggy Pop in a dress yeah and uh, um, and uh, him and uh, Jared Harris arguing over whether or not they're going to eat Johnny Depp yes yes in it's a great film terrifying, in a terrifying scene yeah yeah, yeah. Um, any others you can think of that, that really kind of take that magic realism on yeah, I think um, sort of early David Lynch has a lot of that. Not so much. Well, Eraser had a head to a little set, to an extent, but that's obviously a film that takes place in a nightmare um, reality that's not really anything like ours. But if you look at The Elephant Man and Blue Velvet, mm. those both have a similar sort of feel to it. Particularly, uh, you know, again because of the black and white thing, The Elephant Man kind of has that sort of sense to it of people living real lives in a world that feels constructed uh, but in a way that's sort of sort of more sort of expressionistic and poetic and I think um, there's a lot of uh, Scorsese uh, films have that sort of feel to it the ones that kind of came to mind for me were the sort of the opening of Alice doesn't live here anymore Mm. which is all shot with a sort of painted backdrop and is made to look like a like an old Hollywood sort of film but I think you know the it, for me, it really recalls sort of if Night of the Hunter was shot in Technicolor. Um, Taxi Driver has sort of these big, has these kind of expressionistic flourishes, like when the cab kind of comes through the smoke of the street and kind of almost kind of glides through it. I think that kind of has a feel to it. And Raging Bull has an awful lot of those that sort of feel to it, particularly in the boxing scenes where they sort of famously sort of change the size of the ring to kind of mimic what they sort of the fight means for um Ray, for, for uh, yeah Jake LaMotta at um at that particular point in the film and also something that kind of struck me as a particular kind of Scorsese flourish is the use of the iris in mm. uh at one key point in the film to kind of zoom in on a part of the frame to kind of highlight something that you need to see which uh, was quite a ostentatious little trick that you don't really see used that often. But I know that like, Scorsese uses it quite a lot in 
films. Yeah, I'd hear a film that does use it, which is also makes me think of um, magic realism in films and the kind of films with a dreamlike quality, is uh, Punch Drunk Love, mm. um, which um, punctuates this romance between Adam Sandler and Emily Watson with these kind of kind of orchestral swells of kind of dreamlike 50s-ish music and there's I don't quite know what it is it's kind of like a it's a bit of artwork on screen isn't it but it's kind of moving do you know what I mean those little bits of colour that go in between the, the scenes in Punch Drunk Love yeah yeah they're kind yeah, of like it's just that and the, the John Bryan score yeah and it's it kind of gives this the, the, the film a really kind of odd not real quality and the things where like you know at the start where he finds that piano in the street and then yeah. the car crashes and it's just like little odd touches like that and yeah that that they do the Irish trick in uh, in that as well in terms of films that kind of remind me of Punch Drug Love but uh, not Punch Drug Love remind me of Night of the Hunter but sort of came before it the big one for me is sort of um, the uh, is La Bella La Bette by sort of John Cocteau which is the Beauty and the, Beauty and the Beast obviously um, you're so pretentious is, saying it in French you know what I mean yeah you got you got to up the pretentious quote a little <laughs> bit if we're talking about uh, if we're talking about films you have to be a little bit pretentious do you refer to um, the Disney Beauty and the Beast with the same, the same title <laughs> uh, only if you're in Euro Disney oh yeah or, uh, or Disneyland Europe as it's now known I think I've not been there in a while, no. uh, but that one has a sort of a similar feel to it. You know, it's it's sort of stark black and white, and the the sets are very obviously not real locations, but it gives us this sense of sort of unreality and of the of the main character kind of wandering into a fairy tale world, which I think is is the the sense you get in sort of the Night of the Hunter is that it gradually becomes more and more fairy tale like, and you can see that in the visual style some of the sort of the compositions very much do that sort of particularly the scene where um, Shelley Winters dies or when she's about to be killed mm. where there's a really far away shot of a sort of a tableau of their room and sort of like the the really high sort of arched ce- um, sort of triangular ceiling and everything which is just so kind of beautifully composed but gives it a sense of unreality because of how far away it is and you can tell that there's not four walls to the room because obviously the camera's so far out of it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the most visually striking sequences in the entire film, and twinned mm. with this kind of expressionist performance that Mitchum does, the kind of really over-exaggerated movement of him kind of raising his hands and stuff like that is strikes to make quite the iconic scene. Um, in terms of uh, Mr. Mitchum's uh, performance as, as Harry Powell, Harry Powell is is a uh, supposed to be a man of the cloth, but he is a bad person who kills people. Um, you could say he was a false prophet. Um, he kind of uh, is the head of a long line of, of similar type uh, folk in films. Um, the best one, possibly, or you know, the most disturbing. Yeah, I think he's the most disturb, one of the more disturbing because he's so charismatic. Mm. You know, obviously we view him as a monster because he's so creepy and because we know from the very beginning that he's a killer and that he's he's kind of prading around in this sort of you know the the traditional sort of garb of of being a man of the cloth and everything. But 
you know that he's not really that and that's the disturbing thing because you you can instantly understand how he has been able to kind of get away from it for so long you know the only thing he's arrested for prior to sort of the end of the film when they catch him is uh, for stealing a car where he gets 30 days in prison mm. and you know and obviously the judge is very sort of uh, is, is very harsh on him in his speech you know saying you know a man dressed like you do but you kind of get a sense that the guy has no sense of what an awful person he really is uh, but when you actually see him interacting with people he's very charming and he can he wins people over to him very very easily with the exception of sort of the little boy who's the only one who's who seems to see through him mm. uh, and i think that that is that that's what makes him disturbing is you can you can see how he has learned to operate in the world whilst also sort of murdering people in, uh, indiscriminately um, and similar sort of when I was trying to think of similar examples of sort of people like that and someone that came to mind very easily was uh, Lancaster Dodd uh, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master mm-hmm. who has a similar sort of thing he's obviously not a murderer uh, but he has a similar sort of thing to him where he is just so people are so sort of drawn to him that he is able to spout complete nonsense to people and they kind of fall for it because of the sheer power of his personality and I read book called um, Going Clear by Lawrence Wright which is the history of the Scientology, the Church of Scientology that came out earlier this year mm. uh, which uh, has made me want to sort of re-watch The Master because it fills in a lot of autobiographical details about um, L. Ron Hubbard which kind of uh, is fascinating in regards to sort of the character as he appears in The Master I didn't think The Master was about Scientology well some would say that it is. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, you know. Some could draw that conclusion. Um, Although I still stand by the idea that the master is more just about that kind of sense of people being drawn to something when they are when they're sort of spiritually bereft than specifically about um, Scientology. But obviously, it's informed by Scientology. I think if, for example, he had cast some, the, the main character was a woman, I think you could easily have made it about sort of Iron Rams and the objectivist movement, and it'd be made more or less the same point. Mm. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson's got a bit of previous with uh, False Prophets, because uh, the character of uh, uh, Eli Sunday in mm. There Will Be Blood uh, is a pretty good one. Yeah, and I think he also gets at the sort of the undercurrent again of what the Mitchum character represents in Knife the Hunter, which is people using sort of abusing people's religion for monetary gain. I think for for half of There'll Be Blood, it's kind of coy about the the idea that Eli is doing that, mm. uh, and obviously the final scene of that underpins the fact that really he has been kind of accruing personal wealth through his through exploiting people's faith for quite a long time and it's it's not entirely clear if he was sort of corrupted by working with Daniel Plainview if he was always corrupt but I think that both that and Night of the Hunter kind of get the same sort of thing through the use of a false prophet character Is uh, Daniel Plainview a false prophet? There's a, a you know a very big scene um, kind of halfway through the film where he's talking about everything that his oil uh, operation will give the town where he starts where he's saying he's going to you know build schools and that it's an um it's an abomination to him that families don't have bread and he he will you know irrigate and farm um and we never we know we never really find out if that actually happens and we kind of assume that it just doesn't 
yeah, I think he's definitely a false prophet and a charlatan in that regard, because obviously he's pursuing his own aims and he'll promise anything to anyone that will allow him to sort of do that. Mm. And that's why he agrees to like go to Eli's church and get baptised in that amazing scene where he you know, starts about shouting about abandoning his child. Uh, and I think that that, is, that all kind of plays into his idea of being able to take on any identity he needs in order to sort of do what he wants. And some of that means promising people wealth. Some of that uh, involves fe- uh, feigning religiosity. Mm. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen The Apostle, the Robert Duval film? No, I was just looking at that on Netflix uh, because as we were sort of talking about this. Is it good? It's really good. Um, it's a film that perhaps I shouldn't have started talking about because I can't quite remember it because it was a long time ago that I saw it. Um, but in a sense of a film about a religious man who is uh, conflicted and flawed and definitely doesn't practice what he preaches, mm. um, it's very good. And uh, Duval is amazing. I think he directed it as well. Yes, I, I know that much about it. It was a film that he wrote and directed. Oh, he wrote it as well. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, well worth screenplay. well worth checking out because like he um, spent a long time with uh, kind of one of those evangelical preachers who, you know, uh, in real life turned out to be slightly corrupt. Don't know if you can see a theme emerging there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he spent a lot of time with him, and there's a lot of kind of performance ticks in there that are very unique to to the person he was with and there's, there's oh there's a great what is it he says he says um, oh I, sp- I spoke to God he's, he's talking to God and he's like I called you God and you called me Sonny and he was saying about how uh, I remember seeing an interview with him at the time and he was saying that this um, preacher that he'd followed around and studied always claimed that God called him Sonny and I was like that's that's a little bit presumptuous <laughs> of, <laughs> of a preacher to say well could have called me my name but you know son is a bit much yeah, that's a bit overly familiar with the mm. Almighty. <laughs> uh, and the other um, sort of light-hearted uh, false prophet I uh, came up with thinking about this was uh, the character of Brian from The Life of Brian. Hmm. I wouldn't say he's a prophet. I'd say he's a very naughty boy. <laughs> Let's set you up for that one. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I mean, he's uh, the ultimate. He's a prophet who is different to the other ones because he has absolutely no idea what's happening. <laughs> Yeah, and he doesn't seek to get any sort of personal gain from it. He just seems really annoyed by everything. Mm. Uh, do you think that? Um, do you think that's like Life of Brian is the best film about religion ever made? I think it's the most uh, pointed and insightful uh, in mm. terms of its view of organised religion as being kind of uh, sort of risible, but not necessarily saying the same about faith. Yeah, and that's what I like about it. Yeah, because I think obviously Brian does have a few moments where he talks about people just need to be good to each other and essentially says incredibly nice things, and it does have a nice view of um, does have a nice view of Jesus, who of course told us to told us that the blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know I think it it doesn't I don't think it ridicules people who have faith. It just points out that sometimes this, the rigidness of religion has its limits yeah Which I haven't seen that in ages obviously it was underpinned by the sort of people who um, protested it including at, uh, my, my parents always tell me they had to literally fight through a, a wall of protesters in order to go and watch it in real in, 19, in the 1970s wow there. 
And, uh, you can't imagine such a thing happening today. Yeah, and up until a few recently, it was banned in Aberdeen. It was, until, was it? Until about 2008 or something, and they got a new mayor in who said, no, you can show it now. <laughs> yeah, because I know that like the 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 kind of the board of censors were like, oh well, we're not going to do anything about it. But like, if it's up to individual councils to ban it, and that's what happened. So may, maybe Aberdeen were the last of the holdouts. I think they were. I think that was why it was kind of notable because they were they were literally the last count, the last ones that had banned it that still had a ban in place many years later. Now I wonder if they did a big like celebration screening of it. I'd hope so. I think it would be really pointless if you were to say that the film had, people could now screen it and then just not have a screening <laughs> yeah and just show Fast and Furious 6 um, <laughs> but yeah you, you, you can't really imagine those kind of protests about a film like these days no I think it's it's really hard to imagine people getting quite that riled up about it I mean the closest you'll get is people might cause a stink about a film that seems to have some religiousness to it like I know that there was a lot of controversy about the golden compass and this or the anti-god thing and they said that that played a part in people not wanting to go and see it uh, which mm. I don't know the validity of that or not it's, it's hard to tell I personally think it was just that people didn't really fancy the look of it but the, yeah. the, the controversy about it probably made people think it was too much of a headache I think that's yeah, the, the biggest thing about it would be that people who just kind of think don't really want to be bothered with something that's causing that much of a fuss. Yeah, Da Vinci Code had it a little bit as well, didn't it? But I mean, that had the book behind yeah. it to really kind of. <laughs> yeah, I think that you know I'd be protesting outside Dan Brown's house, saying uh, <laughs> down with this sort of thing, and uh, you know ban this sick filth. Um, I think that's probably a decent enough time to wrap it up. So let's run through um, some other films for the listeners uh, to watch. Um, kind of spawned off the subject uh, in the little section we like to call further viewing um, I'd like to recommend a film which is a great uh, Robert Mitchum turn, a film I saw recently for the first time uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle, have you seen that one Ed? No, uh, I've always wanted to, it's one that seems right up my alley, sort of 70s noir Mitchum mm, Yeah, it's, it's less noirish, it's more kind of, it's quite punchy, it's uh um, it's quite kind of it got that feel of like Dog Day Afternoon to it, mm-hmm. um, perhaps without the the very black hu- humour that runs through uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Um, but yeah, it's a very kind of uh, hard-edged uh, bank bank robbery thriller that I would uh, definitely recommend. And he plays a very morally ambiguous person, and you're never really sure whose side he's on. Um, have you got anything you would like to recommend? Uh, yeah, uh, my first one would be we've talked a lot about. Charles Lawton as a director which is really a very small part of his CV <laughs> because obviously he only directed one film and uh, so I thought I'd try and pick a film about from sort of his back catalogue as an actor so I went for Hobson's Choice directed mm-hmm. by uh, David Lean from uh, 1954 so the year before he made uh, The Night of the Hunter which is a sort of romantic comedy where he plays the father to three uh, to three uh, women who uh, and he's a a shoemaker and he uh, basically is perfectly happy for two of his daughters to get married off but not the other one which sets him up into a rivalry with the daughter that he doesn't want to lose who sort of forms this sort of pact with John Mills and they form a rival business and it's a really funny farce it's really really good really well written Lawton's amazing in it because he can be really monstrous because he's obviously this kind of uh, this this character who's really dictatorial over everyone's lives, but and he's a he's a sort of a raving drunk, 
who has a very, very, he has one of the best scenes of being outrageously drunk, played for laughs that you'll ever see. And it's just a really, really well written, very well put together film. I think it might have been the last or one of the last of the of Lean's sort of British films before he went over and started making sort of big Hollywood epics. It's, it's I think that and Summertime were the last ones he made before you get your sort of your bridge of uh, bridge over the River Kwai's and your Lawrence of Arabia's, but it's it's really good. How is uh, Lawton's Mancunian accent? Um, okay. <laughs> okay, right. Not, okay. not not great, but I think you can kind of say that you can excuse it by going, "Well, it was the 1800s; people spoke different yeah. then." Yeah, I went to see the uh, the stage production of that a couple of years ago, and uh, yeah, there was a few accents from the wrong side of the Pennines in that. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, variable. I'm going to recommend a film. We've, talk, uh, we've talked about um, the film having a very kind of striking visual style, and that style comes from the school of German expressionism. Uh, if you're going to pick one German expressionist film to see, um, go to like with the most famous one, which is The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Uh, would you say that's the most famous one, Ed? Yeah, I think it's that one or Nosferatu, but I think if you want to see kind of the idea of German expressionism, which is that the emotions and sort of the, the story is expressed through the set design as much as it is through anything else. I think Caligari is kind of the the one that you just instantly leech, uh, you instantly leap to because it's all these sort of really jagged angles and very obvious sets designed to create this sort of nightmarish hellscape. Mm. There's uh, a great bit with uh, the somnambulist mm. escaping across the rooftop. It's uh, probably one of the most iconic moments in kind of film and, and uh, if you want to see where Tim Burton gets a lot of his <laughs> kind of set ideas and feel uh, that's a great place to start and also a really good a bloody good film it goes to show that not all silent films are rubbish just most of them just most of them um, and this one um, is you know it's foreign as well so you know double trouble you can't tell though because there's no one's talking exactly uh, what else have you got to recommend uh, one of the sort of the weirder paths my mind went down in trying to think of the further viewing was sort of other films that are about people going on these sort of hallucinogenic journeys down a river so that instantly led to Apocalypse Now which in terms of scale is a little bigger than Night mm. of the Hunter but I think it has a similar sort of quality of characters going on a journey travelling down a river and kind of experience and seeing these sort of bizarre dreamlike uh, things around them but obviously the, the difference is it's their relationships reversed instead of running from something they're running to something and uh, but mm. I think that it's that that one to me is kind of on the same sort of axis of kind of people travelling into a nightmare or into something that's sort of vaguely unreal mm. and way beyond their control oh yeah absolutely um, the last film I'm going to recommend uh, is a film that immediately uh, sprung to mind as Night of the Hunter started. Uh, it was To Kill a Mockingbird, the 1963 adaptation of the novel of the same name. Now, why it, it jumped out at me as being um, similar was it kind of inhabited that same kind of milieu of uh, kind of Depression-era small-town America. Uh, and it also is uh, seemed quite similar because To Kill a Mockingbird is a very famous example of a narrative told uh, through children who perhaps are perhaps slightly too naive to understand the full implications 
of what's going on. Um, did you see any similarities between those two films, Ed? Yeah, definitely. And um, particularly if you consider sort of the last act of To Kill a Mockingbird and sort of the middle act of um, of of The Night of the Hunter, both have a sort of a dream, have this sort of very dreamlike and surreal quality to it. The scene of them travelling down the mirror, the the river, and the scene of the the two children being menaced have the similar sort of mm. thing. And I think partly a part of that is you know not being able to be explicit with violence or to be too menacing towards kids which obviously restricts what you can do but i think it also mm. is just that sort of idea as you say of the the characters not quite understanding what's going on what's happening to them mm, yeah um i also think that uh, just this is just an aside uh to kill a mockingbird the film the robert mulligan uh, film is probably one of the best adaptations of a classic book that I can think of where uh, I don't really think anyone who is a fan of the book complains about the adaptation of the film which is very rare yeah I think when I think of adaptations of great novels they usually don't end out turn out great whereas Mm. it tends to be you know the whole whole rule about how it's really easy to make a great film out of a terrible book but not the other way and very easy to make a terrible film out of a great book hmm but that's one of the very, very rare exceptions of one that works perfectly as a film in its own right, but also just as a great adaptation of a wonderful book. Yeah, yeah. What's your last choice? What are the viewers going to be sent home with today? Uh, my last choice is two films by the same director in the same era. Uh, they are The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, both by Guillermo del Toro. And the reason I went for them is they both obviously have a magical realist uh, vibe to them. Uh, more explicitly in Pan's Labyrinth than in um, Devil's Backbone but both mm. also have uh, corrupt father figures which is something we've talked about a lot in relation to The Night of the Hunter in The Devil's Backbone it's the uh, the, the teacher at the boarding school who is revealed to have a sort of a very seedy past but even before you know that you know he's a very violent man he's very menacing and obviously has sort of this hatred and contempt for the kids in his in his uh, in his care which is you know as we go back to that sort of idea of a great portrayal you know you're placed you are that you are trusted with looking after these kids and you don't you don't meet that responsibility and then mm. Pan's Labyrinth which is film we've we touched on before obviously has the sort of the stepfather who's a fascist and a violent violent man <laughs> just, yeah. just as I was saying that I was thinking I'm not really selling how violent he is considering what his first mm. film scene in the film involves um, yeah. But you know, he there again. You have the idea of these sort of malevolent father figures who um, really the 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 child is the only one who sees how how awful he is because the mother is in love and obviously pregnant with the his child and everyone else around them is also a fascist and doesn't really see anything sort of great uh, anything wrong with what he does. And so I just think those are two examples I thought, and obviously they both have a sort of a lyrical style, and they both have the this sort of edge of sort of the magic of magical realism to it, which I think fits in with the sort of broader discussion of what we've been talking about for uh, for this film. That's about it from us this week. Uh, we will be back next week with the next part of our Ages of Man podcast series. Um, that's correct, isn't it? Yep. Next time we'll be doing adulthood. Uh, which we've talked about before. It's going to be. I think it's probably going to cover the most length of time of all of those because we're kind of doing from sort of 
18 through to sort of middle age yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot of good films to to look at there, and I probably better get watching some this week and uh, doing my homework. Um, so until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.